Special thanks to Jimmy Pham, Brennan Foucher, and Andreas for becoming our newest Southpaw supporters and helping to make this project possible. The global pandemic has hit our day jobs hard. This is now our full-time jobs. If you want great content and can afford a few extra bucks, consider becoming a Southpaw supporter on Patreon. If you want to show everyone else your solidarity, we now have an online store full of Southpaw swag. You can find links to both our store and our Patreon at southpawpod.com. When it comes to left media, we cannot exist without your support. This is Sam. This is James. And this is Southpaw. Today on Southpaw, I have with me James Robinson, a researcher whose academic work is so much about what Southpaw is all about. Hi, James. Hello. So you just wrapped up your dissertation titled Strikes and Strikeouts, Building an Anti-Racist, Anti-Fascist Working Class Sports Culture from Below. So can you explain to us what your dissertation is about? Yeah, sure. Uh, I defended it a couple of weeks ago um, in the middle of a quarantine. So that was interesting. Um, so my basic argument, my basic dissertation is on the rise and fall of the labor sports movement in the United States. Um, it's mostly a forgotten phenomenon today, but from the late 30s through the early 50s, there were attempts at building a larger mass sports movement rooted in left-wing values of anti-racism and anti-fascism and working class solidarity. Um, so, you know, th this thing starts in the 20s and there's attempts at building it, but it really explodes in, in the late 30s. Um, my argument is that it actually starts in Europe with the worker sport movement, um, which in Europe is, is massive. Uh, there's two... Um, worker sport internationals, the SAZI or the socialist slash social democrat sport international, and the and then the communist one, the RSI or Red Sport International, uh, working in parallel to each other. So there's attempts made by American radicals to transport that worker sport movement into the United States in the twenties. But they meet with sort of limited success. Um, they're mostly confined confined to radical immigrant communities and some youth groups. Um, but worker sport inspires socialists in the International Ladies Garment Workers Union um, in 1931 to adopt its own version of mass recreational sports even as worker sport began to fall in the face of fascist repression. Um, so a few years later, the uh, I'll be throwing out a lot of acronyms. I'll try to spell them out because it can get confusing. Unions and leftist groups love their abbreviations and acronyms. 
Um, so the ILGWU, which again is International Lady, uh, Ladies Garment Workers Union, provides sort of key organizing experiences in the CIO upsurge of the late 30s, which is Congress of Industrial Organizations. Um, and the ILGWU labor sports melds with uh, communist sports organizers in the CIO to, so, to create that explosion of labor sports. Um, so the biggest one is in the United Auto Workers, but uh, also the United Electrical and Radio Workers, the Steel Workers Organizing Committee, the International Warehouse um, the International Longshoremen and Warehousemen Union, and a lot more. Um, so that movement continues to boom until the repression years of the McCarthyist Red Scare and general suburbanization. So that's that's the that's the abstract version. Um, you know, when we're thinking about these, it's important to look at uh, the concept of the Popular Front. Um, which was this big anti-fascist, anti-racist um, culture that was spawned by the communists, but um, really led to formation of informal and fluid networks of leftists who fell in and out of uh, communist or socialist circles. Um, and so that goes beyond the actual membership roles of of uh, of those organizations so if you want to look at it it's something today like whether somebody's a member of the dsa or just sort of hanging out with them you could think about it that way um there's there's varying shades um so yeah that's the long and short of it um i argue that um that they built a really participatory activity um, in these labor sports, um, which helped build organizational strength, uh, morale, and was a key part of outreach and influence over potential new members. Um, and in this, I look particularly at the Socialist Party and the Communist Party because they were the two biggest players of leftist groups. All the other ones had sort of um, fall into very uh, minor in comparison um, roles. So uh, the IWW is is still around, but it's it's a shell of what it was in the teens um, by the end of the twenties. Um, and you know, there's the traps and all that, but they're, they're pretty small. Um, so the socialists and the communists are the big players, and then. Um, you know, in the unions, uh, these groupings, the socialists and the communists have a lot of influence. They're the militants in these unions. They're the key organizers because they're ideologically, um, motivated. Uh, something I should say is because somebody's calling themselves a communist or a socialist doesn't mean they're completely ideologically committed to these organizations in fact that's especially true with the communists in the in the popular front era it doesn't mean you're a stalinist or um even a diehard uh communist it's just 
that seemed like the group that was doing the most um, militant organizing. So for a lot of us who've never had to get a PhD, right, we don't know what defending a dissertation means. So what does that mean? Um, so it's basically like writing a book. Um, you have a number of years to do your research where you go to all the different archives and all. And this differs by the field. For history, you, you basically make an original argument um, writing a book, and then you defend it before a committee that's um, pretty much guided you through the process. So by defend, does that mean they're attacking you? Like they're constantly like trying to break down your argument or? Some, I mean, they're, they're raising um, critical questions about either like, can you expand on this? Can you talk about this part more um, or giving you suggestions on what you could fix um, if you ever make it into a book? Um, so yeah, it's kind of like engaging with your work um, and to sort of, usually there's a lot of rounds of edits before you get to the dissertation defense. Um, if you have a good advisor, which I did, um, um, Heather Street Salter, who's, who's my advisor, um, she helped me refine this a lot. So, you know, you go through all the edits and then, um, once you get to the defense day, yeah, you, you go th through it for a couple hours. Um, it's a Q&A, and then you're a doctor after that. <laughs> so let's start with the obvious question then. What has left-wing politics got to do with sports and ultimately sports culture? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so sports are something that can either reinforce the uh, values of dominant society. Um, they can serve as distractions from people's miseries, or uh, they can be a way to invert dominant society to challenge um, power. Because um, sports, you know, they're highly uh, choreographed, but uh, you can't fake the relationships built on the field. You can't fake the um emotion uh so there's really you know when you're thinking about sports there's there's you can think about the different levels of it so the best thing to do in sports is to play it second best thing is to watch people that you know play it and then the third best thing you can go from there is to watch it in person watch it on television or radio listen to it um but the, it's a powerful cultural um, phenomenon. Um, it engages your senses. Um, it gets you exercise. It can be, it can be healthy. It can also injure you pretty good. Um, you form relationships through sports. So at that bottom level, it's a very powerful thing. And um, many times the left has ignored it. Uh, treated it like a distraction or a opium of the masses, which, you know, I think there's been some arguments about sport as a religion. What do you mean by bottom level? Um, so like your grassroots, your, your um, normal people playing or watching or engaging with it. Um, so you and me, for instance, 
uh, or your neighbor or whoever. Um, sport is something that is is pretty universal in our modern society. Um, you know, as someone who's been involved in leftist organizing or union organizing, I have often used sports as a gateway to talk about the game or connect with somebody based on common interests in baseball or football or whatever else. Is that what popular front movement was about then? Taking things from popular culture and trying to create solidarity from it? Uh, the cultural aspects were, um, the general idea was uniting the not only the left, but also any uh, working with liberals um, to oppose fascism and, and build um, a larger anti-fascist uh, grouping. Um, this comes out of the experience of the late 20s and 30s, where the socialists and the communists and liberals really hated each other and didn't work with each other and often treated each other as as bad as the fascists. And in the end, it got a lot of people killed um, when the fascists came to power. How did they get people killed? So when I say that, uh, it's the fascists doing the killing. And um, the argument is that it's because the socialists and the communists and liberals didn't work together in the late 20s. This was prior to the Popular Front. Yeah, exactly. Sorry, I should have given you a timeline. <laughs> so their infighting made them vulnerable to getting killed by the fascists. Yeah, in Europe. After the fascists came to power in Central Europe, the idea was there was a shift away from that sectarianism more toward a united front. It's also called the Popular Front. Okay, so that's how the Popular Front came to be. Right, exactly. Um, it was spearheaded by the communists, uh, but it quickly grew into this larger thing. And then in the United States, that took the form of mass labor organizing, um, which dovetailed into to anti-racist organizing, which had been going on, but it, it became much larger. So back to what I was previously asking you about with left-wing politics and sports culture. I think right now people have this disconnect because many of us believe whether uh, it's participation in sports or just physical culture, that's part of being young. And politics right, is right. for adults. So it's two different worlds, two different age groups. Uh, that's our perception anyway. But was this always the case that participation in sports was just for kids? Oh, absolutely not. Um, I mean grassroots sports and where normal people were were playing sports was in the interwar period between the two wars was just huge people were not going to see your local um professional team people aren't go you're in los angeles mm -hmm. so they wouldn't be going to see the dodgers or or whatever equivalent was then um they were saying their local team um, their grassroots team, their people were not getting paid, just normal workers. Um, and, you know, everybody was doing this. This wasn't limited to leftists. Um, you know, you have mass Catholic um, sports, you have um, all sorts of teams, 
some sponsored by industry, some sponsored by unions. Um, but a lot of people are just, you know, they're just Sandlot teams. Um, just people who are friends and, you know, there's, you don't have a lot of money and you don't have, uh, access to much because of the poverty of the great depression. Um, so you just start playing ball and leftists in this period, um, were trying to engage with that and trying to, um, organize around what people were interested in, uh, which was sports um, and playing sports. So how do unions fit into this? Yeah, that's a great question too. Um, so in the late 30s, you see a mass upsurge in labor organizing um, by the Congress of Industrial Organizations. Um, so they, they kind of embark on this mass organizing in and industries that were uh, union-free previously, so the auto industry, the steel industry, a lot of um, machinery manufacturing, particularly radio. Um, and so you, you see new mass unions that are different than previous unions. Uh, previous unions are sort of more limited mostly by craft uh, you have to be a plumber or a, um, a motor or something like that. Um, so the CIO helps create this new culture. And they recruit a lot of communists and socialists when they're doing this. Um, and they quickly take um, one of the key aspects of the ILGWU, which is their mass recreation program, and take the most popular part of it. Um, the sports programs, and they sort of use that to create this this mass labor sports uh, culture, which blows up very quickly um, and becomes, you know, basically anywhere you go where labor has a stronghold, you'd see union teams. Um, and the the places where you see the most union teams are places with strong communist or socialist leadership and the locals of the unions. And you mentioned the CIO. For listeners, can you tell us what that is? Yeah, it's Congress of Industrial Organizations. And this is a, a split from the American Federation of Labor to organ do that mass organizing. So it was the AFL-CIO? Yes. They, they exist from 1935 to 55 when they remerge with the AFL to create the AFL-CIO. In your research, uh, you speak about somebody named Fania Cohn. Can you tell us about her? And I'm, did I say her name right? Uh, probably. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I can't say I'd be any better. That, that, uh, that sounds right. Um, when you look back at some of these old names... Um, it's it's just interesting to see what people were naming their uh -huh. kids then, like like Fania or Fanny. You'd probably call her at the time. Um, like there's such old fat or Olga, for instance, like or Bertha. These are common names of like young people. It's it's just kind of funny to me <laughs> that like things we associate with 
like old people. <laughs> like they were like in vogue at one time. Anyway, that's a total aside. I, well, it all comes back, right? Those were kind of just common working class names. And then a hundred years later, posh people start looking at baby name books and they see a name like that. And so they think that's like kind of cute. And so they bring back old names like that. But now it's like of prestige. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's kind of like food. Like a lot of food is basically peasant food made fancy. So she was a longtime Socialist Party member and uh, in the education department of the ILGWU, um, which pushed both educational programs and um, uh, recreational programs. So they would do like mass lectures for workers um, and they helped build that the recreation program, um, which, you know, it's it's remembered pretty well for its labor theater. Um, some pretty good old labor songs um, started with uh, the education department. So Fania Khan was a key organizer. Um, she was either at the head of it or um, doing some work with it. Um, she was always on the left of the Socialist Party, but she kind of was able to stay with the union despite various factional fights. Um, so, yeah, she, she is definitely somebody that is key in understanding the building of uh, labor sports. Um, she was active mostly in the 20s through early 30s. So education used to be a big part of unions. Oh, yeah. Which not only includes political education, but also sports and recreation and theater, like you mentioned. So can you tell us more about the educational component of unions and what the hell happened to it? Uh, well, that I mean, the second part of your question, what the hell happened to it? Uh, you could say that about a lot of things in the American <laughs> labor movement. Um uh, I'll start with the the first one though. Um, so yeah, education. This really differs depending on the union um, in the early part of the 20th century. So a lot of unions didn't care about education at all and were pretty conservative. They would either have have only uh, white men in the union. Um, so the ILGWU is different in that manner in that it was mainly Jewish union of um, sweatshop workers. It started after, well, it it didn't start, but it blew up after the Triangle uh, shirtwaist fire. Um, and it always had this like very socialist orientation. Uh, it's called social unionism in which uh, union isn't just for wages and benefits. It's uh, it's also for the larger cultural life and advancement of its workers and membership. Um, so, you know, you're forming bonds in the neighborhood, um, producing all sorts of newspapers and uh, debates and um, sort of... Uh, efforts to overturn the industry by creating something stronger than um, the capitalist world. Uh, they're basically, to use the old quote, creating uh, a new world in the shell of the old. Um, so that's the idea. The ILGWU is 
the largest of these sort of social union, um, social unionism. Um, there are others, and they're mostly centered in the garment industry and textile in- industry. Was there also political education, like teaching union members about left wing politics? Yeah, absolutely. That was probably that predates sports, actually. Um, they actually add sports and other recreation later, mostly because people were were getting bored at the lectures. You can only lecture at people or have classes so much. There's just some people who will never be interested in that. <laughs> um, but yeah, the producing pamphlets, having huge rallies, which um, another aside, so, a, a term I came across quite a bit in the 19 teens is calling something monster. So monster rally, which kind of reminds me of monster trucks. Um, but they, they had political rallies. They had speakers um, come to the unions quite often. They took the education of its workers um, quite seriously, which was very, it made a huge difference in the lives of people who have very little access to education. So this isn't just political education, then it's also just education, period. Yeah, yeah, particularly around literacy. Um, uh, you you know, these people who grew up in the, in the sweatshop industries of the garment industries in New York um, and other big cities, um, yeah, you'd be lucky if you made it past third grade. So having access to education um, and quality political education was very important. It made a huge difference in their lives. Now, as the 20s go on, like I said, yeah, people were like, okay, that's nice. You know, I actually don't care that much (laughs) about reading these pamphlets, but they would be interested in playing sports. Um, And they can be brought into the political culture that way. Um, Or the labor theater. Um, So all these are going on. Whatever people are interested in, that's what the union um, is trying to engage with. And it's, you know, like it or not, people are interested in sports. And if you ignore that, um, this you can argue this now, you can argue this in the 1920s, the 1960s, whatever. Um, like it or not, people like sports. And if you do not engage with that, you are ceding that to other forces who do not mind engaging with it. So you're ceding it to the right or you're ceding it to religious groups. Um, So they made that argument then, uh, leftist sports organizers. If we don't do this, other people will. Oh, so they were well aware of that back then. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's sometimes when you do historical research on leftists or labor organizing, it's kind of depressing seeing, oh, I have had that exact same argument <laughs> <laughs> you see the same thing sort of going in loops and that goes back to like the 19th century too it's it's not even the 1920s it's the 1850s something you mentioned earlier was suburbanization and you said that was a part of a lot of the decline of this stuff so can you explain for us what is suburbanization and how that affected leftist union sports yeah yeah um so looking at the decline, there's two things going on. One is the repression of the McCarthyist era where leftist unions and organizations and individuals were targeted uh, by McCarthy. Um, 
and the Red Scare. And he was a senator? Yes, yeah. Yeah, he he's famous for doing these these hearings where he'd wave a list of of uh, names in Hollywood or the Defense Department. But it went much beyond that. And what was that fear? Like in the U.S., we're supposed to be able to have political freedom and freedom of speech. So what was the fear about? Um, it's in the early days of the Cold War. Um, so the fear is that the Soviet Union is infiltrating the united states oh so they're russian assets <laughs> yeah 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 exactly yeah um yeah it is kind of funny to hear that term coming up again um and so that's one thing and then the other is the suburbanization that's the sort of mass um movement of of particularly uh white residents in cities to uh suburbs um, some people from rural areas too, uh, but you, you sort of see population shifts, um, the white flight of, uh, your white working class to middle class people from cities, just as, uh, black people are moving from the South to Northern and Western cities. Um, so you, you see a real shift and a large part part of the population to su- uh, suburbs, um, your Levitt towns, um, which are you know sort of developments and affordable housing, uh, particularly if you're a veteran and particularly if you're white, uh, to these these suburban style housing. You know it, it's it's funny when you think of suburbs now, you think of these sort of boring uh, cookie cutter. Uh, places that people move away from when they get a chance. But I was looking at newspaper articles in the late 50s and and teenagers really wanted to, um, particularly like baby boomer teenagers and kids really wanted to get out of the city um, because they saw it as this like dirty, dangerous place. <laughs> they were already waving their fists at the cities, even as teenagers. Yeah, I know. It's, it's kind of funny. <laughs> I mean, we could go on about the baby boomers, and I certainly love some baby boomers, but as a generation, uh, they had an interesting life experience. So how does being in the suburbs then take away from the union sports movement? Um, So it's not right away. It's it's basically a a generational cultural shift to hyper-individualism. Um, in which you don't talk to your neighbors as much. You see organizational decline. Um, and this isn't unique to labor sports. This slow um, cultural shift, uh, you see sports across the board just die. Recreational sports leagues, uh, semi-pro leagues, uh, minor leagues, they all, the numbers are just bleak. They just plummet. Um, a lot of that is television too. Um, so people just start watching the elite level sports a lot more um, instead of participating or watching their local teams um, or you know their teams that friends play. So rec sports in general just fall, um, and people are watching the game on TV instead. So there's there's a cultural shift. Um, and again, this isn't overnight. It's not like people just stop playing all of a sudden or people just stop like 
liking play. Um, but over a couple decades, it, it sort of kills that that culture that labor sports had thrived in. So it went from being a participant to becoming a consumer of mass sports. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, and this isn't universal. Some of the more militant unions, uh, their labor sports survive a lot longer. So the ILWU, which is the longshoremen basically on the West Coast, um, their labor sports last into the 80s. Um, and you still do see there is some union sports, but they're around sports like bowling um, and golf more. Um, and, but, and th even that's fairly limited. So the history of left-wing sports also seems to be a microcosm of left-wing politics. You had unions, communists, and socialists seemingly united around sports. Maybe they had different sports leagues, but they were all interested in that popular culture. Yes. Then there was a split. And what I mean by split is like communists and socialists split and different factions split off. Can you tell us about that? Um, so the difference between the socialist sports and the communist sports were on the ground. And this is true in Europe, too. Um, there wasn't much of a difference. They, they looked pretty similar. Um, and that's largely because they copied each other a lot. Um, so there's this sort of synergy, to use a more modern term. Um now they so before the popular front they pretty much um operated in um competition with each other um so they they didn't cooperate at all they didn't play each other um they organized against each other um and they were basically rivals during the popular front they worked together but then after so when the Cold War starts up, a lot of the socialists sort of drift into social uh, democracy. So they have a lot of influence. Um, they're influenced a lot by uh, European social democrats um, who are pretty anti-communist. Um, so a lot of post-Popular um, Front, a lot of the socialists um, help basically purge the communists from the union ranks um, and help destroy a lot of the communist-led labor sports. Why did they do that? Was it because of Stalinism? Yeah, partly. Uh, the other part was they had long ideological differences and histories of, of being enemies. Um, the socialists felt like the communists couldn't be trusted. And there's something to be said uh, for that, because if you'd have a party line shift, um, the communists could suddenly become your enemies, which happened a few times. Um, the other part is they, on the ground, they had profoundly different outlooks. So the socialists, by the end of the um, World War II, really had this emphasis on experts um corporatism so you're you're putting your faith in in um college educated um experts to run things well um the communists on the ground had more of a syndicalist 
outlook and that you're trying to build worker power. Um, now, that syndicalist outlook on the ground is obviously comes into conflict with their with the larger Stalinist outlook um, by the Communist Party, but it's sort of like the tail wagging the dog. Um, the the leadership of the Communist Party didn't really want to crack down on the uh, union organizers because they were their main source of power. Does that make sense? Um, <laughs> it, there is some funny stories of of uh, union organizers um, basically pushing back if they if they got instructions from the Communist Party that they disagreed with. They'd a lot of times they'd either ignore it or they'd tell them to go fuck themselves. <laughs> um, so there was uh, one guy, uh, Mike Quinn of the Transport Workers Union in New York. Um, he was told to endorse the uh, Progressive Party in the 1948 elections by the Communist Party. And he was like, I don't think that's a great idea. And there he was told um, that, you know, you're expected to fall in line. The Central Committee has given you instructions. And then he's like, yeah, well, fuck your Central Committee. And <laughs> he just walks out. So, you know, that it. it it's never like like a total like top down uh, organization. There's a lot of pushback from organizers on the ground. And wasn't there even infighting within the communists uh, in the U.S. when uh, it became clear what was happening in the Soviet Union and with Stalin? Oh yeah, that was the death knell of the Communist Party in the fifties. Um, you know, they'd put so much faith in the Soviet Union and looked at it as as a model that when some of the horrors started really coming out, you know, they had at first dismissed it as propaganda, but when Khrushchev basically admitted the crimes of Stalin, that, that was like a dagger. That was um, uh, basically one of the final nails in the coffin. Um, when the Soviet Union invades Hungary in 1956, that was it. The Communist Party was more or less done. The only people left in it were hardcore Stalinists after that, and their influence over um, labor was was kaput after that. One of the things that you're differentiating right now are socialists and communists, but today people use those terms interchangeably. So can you define for us how these political belief systems were different? Um, yeah, there's a there's a longer history there. Um, so they all, the, the communists called themselves socialists as well, and they were descended from the Socialist Party. Um, so the socialists, when I say socialists, they're all socialists, but um, as far as factional groupings, well, I use socialists to mean members of or in the circles of the Socialist Party. So kind of uh, capital S or lowercase socialist. Yeah, that. Yeah, exactly right. Like today, somebody might call themselves a socialist, but they're not necessarily a member of the DSA or whatever other group. Um, so the Socialist Party, you know, they they have their origins in the 19th century, and 
Eugene Debs is their one of their big figures. Um, they put emphasis. This is in the U.S. Yes, in the U.S. Um, it's similar elsewhere too, though. Um, so that they, they have put emphasis on electing uh, people into office uh, or gaining um, control over unions um, and sort of uh, a more gradual uh, process of building socialism or social democracy, um, which they they began. And by the 30s, they're sort of conflating them, uh, socialism and social democracy. Um, the communists are, you know, they're by and large much more radical. Um, they uh, are calling for uh, a revolution, a, a more violent uprising. Um, and depending on the period, there's a few shifts in the Communist Party. Um, and, you know, at some points they're much more sectarian. They, If you're not a communist, then you're basically a fascist. Um, and then other points, like in the popular front, they're willing to work with people much more. Um, and, but they do have this, this, uh, idea of, of revolutionary politics, um, and a radical overthrow of society, um, of capitalist society and a basic real strong hatred of of uh, the bourgeois world as they term it um now they're both rooted in radical working class politics and a lot of times who people end up supporting is oftentimes just basically who you're friends with or um what how uh your locality is shaped out um so or some of the history. So a lot of the why they're enemies is because um, something happened in Russia. So the Bolsheviks might have arrested some of your friends because a lot of these groupings are um, have links with the old world. Um, so, you know, there's history there and direct experience. So by old world, you mean uh, a lot of this is done by immigrants to the U.S., so their beef might go back to wherever they came from, and it might be more of a historical context of European, you know, inner country disputes and inner politic disputes. Yeah, or their kids. Um, so it's the immigrants. In the 20s, it is a lot of immigrants. By the 30s and 40s, it's a lot of their kids. Uh, it's there a lot of their American kids. There's reasons why in the 20s you see a lot of the sports organizers who are immigrants um, doing things like gymnastics or um, uh, sprinting or um, uh, wrestling. While in the 30s, you've seen a shift to what people are engaging with, to basketball and softball and baseball and boxing. Um more things that are common in America. And that, that isn't unusual, actually, um, for the kids of immigrants to start adopting what the popular sports are. Um, so, yeah, there's a sort of generational shift in the 20s or in the 30s um, where they um, you really start to see these leftists uh, in, um, engaging in what American working class people liked.
So were American unions all started by communists and socialists, or were there other groups involved? Oh, no, definitely not. <laughs> um, so the American labor movement is, you know, a lot of it is uh, from very conservative um, sort of ethnic groupings. Um, like I said, the AFL has, is, has a history of being conservative um, or a craft union. So the difference between craft unions and industrial unions, a craft union, uh, you have to have a skill. So like a welder or a plumber or a molder or um, uh, a carpenter. Um, you have to pass a test. Generally, um, it's people of one ethnicity. Um, so it's it's a lot more gate-kept, and they're a lot smaller, usually, um, much more conservative. Uh, that's a craft union. And by conservative, you mean socially conservative? Uh, sometimes, yes, uh, or just not interested in doing mass organizing. So meaning like they just wanted labor rights for themselves, but they weren't really interested in the greater labor movement. All they cared about is their direct members. They had no interest in building mass class politics or bettering working class people in general. Um, and you had to you had to be a member of this particular small union to do certain work. Um, while an industrial union, on the other hand, it's uh, the basic model is wall to wall. Anybody who works in this particular building or plant or uh, aim is to be in the entire industry um, is a member of the union. So that's the, whether you have a skill or not, um, whether you're just an assembly worker or whatever else, um, you're a member of the union. So, so um, these an industrial union is is a much larger sort of envisioning of what unionism is. Worker sports in the 1930s was huge in Europe. Can you tell us about that and like kind of explain to us the scope of its popularity? I don't know if we can imagine it. Yeah, um, it is somewhat hard to imagine. Uh, Post World War One. You, you see all these clubs uh, form, and again, they're associated with either the socialists or the communists, um, and there's two federations, the RSI, the communists, or the SASI, uh, the socialists. And in the scales I've seen, we have millions of people involved in these things, um, and the clubs are all over the place and they really do challenge mainstream uh, sports, amateur sports, especially. Um, and that previously you generally had to be um, to be in an amateur athletic club. You had to be middle class or upper class. You had to, some of them even barred um, particular occupations. Um, so you, if you're a factory worker, you were not able to join. Um, these middle class athletic clubs would, um, you know, you'd have a high entry fee, uh, or whatever else it was supposed to be well to do. So this worker sport movement really challenges that and says, no, workers should have access to recreation. Um, 
parks, uh, uh, fields, um, stadiums, whatever else. Workers should be able to participate in sports um, or gyms, for that matter. Um, and, you know, that's that's a key demand is mass access to healthy recreation and healthy um, sort of uh, working class social life. Um, so some of this actually does push back against uh, saloon culture. Um trying to get workers away from alcohol and that sort of mirrors um that uh muscular christianity so sometimes there's parallels between leftist groups and religion um muscular christianity is is you know you have people um engage in physically fit manly um uh activity and prove their Christian manhood uh, against um, their opponents. And so, you know, if in the popular imagination, you could think of people like Theodore Roosevelt um, with hunting uh, lions and stuff, uh, or like riding on top of a moose and <laughs> in a river, which is that picture is actually fake, but you know. Um, Wasn't there also muscular Judaism too? Yeah, I mean the YMCA and the uh, what was it? Uh, oh shoot, it's the Young YHCA. I think it, no, 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 no. What? Uh, YMHA. That's it. Uh, the Young Men's Hebrew Association. Yeah, the, there there was these like ethnic slash um, uh, religious uh, organizations, and you know religious like ymca is is certainly religious and comes from that muscular christianity um but they, they're they're not especially pushy about people actually being uh christians but you know it's in the background so during this time there was also an international socialist congress uh which was would you say it was essentially a proto-union olympics yeah, so like I said, these um, worker sport federations were usually associated with either the socialists or the communists. Um, so that particular one was associated with the uh, socialists. Um, so they'd often uh, put the events together. So if, if you're having an international socialist um, meeting, so the second international which is a, basically a grouping of political parties. You'd also have the the uh, sports international meet alongside of it in order to basically provide entertainment, um, which was pretty common for labor sports. Um, you know, you'd have meetings and then you'd you could go to the Workers' Olympics. Did they call it the Workers' Olympics? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's three official ones um so the first one is in oh is in frankfurt in 1925 um the next one is in vienna um and then the last one is in um antwerp in belgium um 
and that one's in 1937. So those are the three official ones. Now there's tons of regional ones and unofficial ones and places like Prague and Cologne and Berlin. So can you give us the scale of the Vienna one in comparison to the actual real Olympics in LA, like the difference in size? Yeah, the the one in Vienna is hundreds of thousands of participants and audience members, while the one in in Los Angeles the next year is uh, probably around 5,000 total participants and audience. And some of that's because the Great Depression has really uh, made travel harder. But a lot of that is because worker sport is a lot more participatory. Um, you're, you're encouraging um, mass participation as well as competition. And I'm not one of these people that says competition is bad. I think it can be fun and um, recreational and builds relationships. But um, they really had an emphasis on we want you to show up. Uh, We want you to, just like they say today, like half the battle is just showing up to the gym. Um, uh, Worker sport had really an emphasis on participation over uh, glory of individuals. So it's more of a collective spirit. Um, now you, you'd represent your nation somewhat, but it was more around the individual worker club and delegation. Um, the, you wouldn't like, you'd have some of your national flags, but, um, you're, you were more interested in representing your club, your worker sport club. And these, yeah, these things are absolutely enormous. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to imagine. Like you compare the regular Olympics to that, and it was like almost finding out humans used to have wings and fly. Like what happened to this thing? Especially because if it is so big, you would think we would have all heard about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's become a niche thing. Um, a lot of that, you know, it's crushed. It, it's not a continuing thing. Um, the fascists destroy it. Um, so a lot of these worker sport clubs are also self-defense um, organizations against the fascists. Or, and there, uh, a lot of them are also sobriety clubs. Um, but, and the, the first thing, the anti-fascist self-defense, um, they're obviously, when the fascists come to power, they're, they lose, basically. Actually, I've been doing a lot of interviews with anti-fascist gyms and clubs, uh, especially in the UK. And what's interesting is that they're all fairly young, like a couple years old is like some of the oldest ones in the UK and in the US. I think there's only like one gym and that's also fairly young. So to your point, then it like disappeared and then it's now reemerging. And so when I talked to them and asked them what their inspiration was, they're like, yeah, we found out there's this history of these anti-fascist gyms <laughs> and uh, we're just trying to recreate that movement. But it's like, why does it need to be recreated? Why wasn't there a continuous through line? Yeah. So you're saying then what happened was they were defeated by the fascists? Yeah, yeah. They were crushed. Uh, they never rose up again. Um, not in the same numbers. There are. There is actually... a an organization that exists today that is a descendant of those groups, but the, it's, it's very small in comparison to what it was. Um, and 
Yeah, so in Europe, it's crushed in the early 30s, and uh, the remnants of it are gone by World War II um, for obvious reasons. <laughs> were the intentions of these groups the same as it is today to defend yourself because there were more fascist attacks? Yes. Yep. 100%. If you look at the newspapers in uh, Germany and Austria, it's full of um, of the worker sport organizations. It's full of, of depictions of so-and-so comrade was murdered by Nazis the other night. Um, uh, so it's one and the same, these sports organizations, uh, double as self-defense organizations and social, uh, organizing. So that's, you know, that's the situation in Europe. It's, it's life or death. And they're really sounding the alarm, um, that this is life or death. But unfortunately the leadership of, of the leftist groups are never able to, um, work together until it's too late. Something that I'm also seeing that's happening now, which people today might not even be aware of what happened in the past. It might be just parallel thinking or experiences inform the same type of attitudes. But one of this pro-sobriety, anti-drug culture within anti-fascist clubs and movements. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly what's going on with that. It, it might be in the 20s and 30s in Europe, um, you know, saloons are an incredibly destructive thing in working class life. Like they're a source of socializing, uh, too, but they're also, um, you know, very bad for people. Like the amount of hard liquor that is consumed in whiskey saloons or even beer halls um, is just like it's hard to do organizing when you're when people you're working with are destroying their lives. Um, I don't see the same thing in the United States though. And uh, that might be something to do with prohibition that people are sort of secretly, uh, drinking. I don't, but I don't see the same sort of backlash against alcohol. In fact, I do see alcohol used in labor sports, um, in the United States. So like come to the ball game and we'll also have beer. I think the importance of it, and I think even if Americans aren't necessarily having the same backlash against it, I think there is an element of being aware of it. That's why there are these like kind of outliers who take it upon themselves. There's not enough for it to be a movement, let's say, outside of, let's say, punk rock, which straight edge within punk rock has its own issues. But just this general idea of that could be a destructive force. The reason I think why American, especially radicals and revolutionaries should think about it is because I've been speaking to a lot of people who were 70s radicals who were part of Black Panthers or AIM or Brown Berets, these different radical movements within the U.S., and in speaking to them, I asked them, like, what killed these movements? Was it COINTELPRO? Was it the CIA? And they were like, yeah, that killed a lot of people and going to jail. That was a big part of it. But they said the real nail in the coffin was drugs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it made me really think about it, right? You have this movement. You could arrest people, but it's an idea. It's going to keep spreading and multiplying. How do you really kill this thing? And you just introduce drugs into that area and that will kill it. And in rural areas, you have opioids and uh, in uh, urban areas, you have crack. So there's also the uh, barrier to entry as far as price, the cost prohibitiveness. 
is low because these things are cheap or you could get it through your insurance. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it doesn't seem like it's something we're thinking about too much, but the effects that drugs and alcohol can have on a movement. Yeah. We already have that in history and kind of like what you said in your research. We keep repeating the same mistakes. Right. <laughs> I didn't really realize that or recognize that until I started speaking to some of these old timers. And I'm like, oh, shit, how can we forget about this stuff? Then going back to Europe, they knew about the destructiveness of saloon culture. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, that, that might have something to do with prohibition because prohibition does kill saloon culture in the United States. That never comes back, even after um, prohibition ends. Like, Men and women don't didn't drink together before prohibition, but because of all these um, these uh, speakeasies, people just start treating alcohol differently. They switch more to beer than hard alcohol, which you know there's still a lot of problems with it, but it's not quite as destructive. Um, so I don't know. That's just a guess, but you know, th thinking about how things like that kill social movements. Um, and organiz radical organizations, um, you're getting into the, more of the new left. Uh, well, I, I do think because of the repression and the cultural shifts, uh, the old left really dies in the 50s. And there's really a break in memory yes. between the two. Um, so in the 60s, you see this, the rise of the new left. Um, which is really more based around uh, subcultures. Um, so like youth music scenes, um, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Um, uh, and it's just really a different emphasis. It's, it's less collective, uh, but um, you also see um, a lot of things that the old left never really envisioned like the black panthers or aim or people like that um and that you know there's there it's good and bad there is that like loss of of institutional memory but there's also they're doing some things that are are pretty badass I think the emphasis became less about worker solidarity and in the 60s it became more about anti-war yeah yeah Totally. Um, as well as like uh, militant uh, racial organizing. Um, the, the old left really tried to, they were more about in integration, uh, bringing black members into uh, mass uh, organizing. Well, in the new left, it was more about like building like self empowerment of those communities. Um, and you know, there is some of that in the old left. And for instance, communist organizers in Alabama in the early 30s um, amongst black sharecroppers, but it's 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 limited. Um, and, you know, going back to the, the drug question. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that's a it's a big one. And I think that there is some leftovers of that of the sort of subcultural endorsement of uh, alcohol and, and, um, and drugs that like some people are, are afraid to, to engage with. Um, but you know, these things are really real. Like if you, if you try to explain the concept of straight edge to somebody in the thirties, they'd be like, Oh, you're like a teetotaler. 
like a religious, <laughs> like, you know, it's just, there's a lot of history. There's a lot of years in between the two that wouldn't totally translate. I mean, think about the quarantine, uh, like try to explain that to us in December. <laughs> like, like it just seemed like what? So going back to the anti-fascist clubs and gyms, what kinds of things were taught there? Would it be equivalent to today's MMA, where it's like boxing and wrestling and some kicks and some joint locks? Yeah, almost entirely boxing. Um, the ones in the United States I saw, um, <laughs> it's it's kind of funny with the longshoremen there. It seemed like more down to have a fight um, than other groups I looked at. So some of the, the boxers in the longshoremen also would be working the picket lines. So if they'd encounter scabs trying to cross the picket lines and they'd try to, the scabs would try to attack the picketers, the boxers would just sort of make short work of them. If you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's another gap in institutional knowledge, right? Is we forget now that boxing used to be a form of self-defense. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the the quote I I heard from listening to an interview with an old boxer who was involved in the union. Um, so this guy's long dead, but I listened to an interview that was done in the early 80s. But he said that, you know, if they came unarmed, um, my fists meant that I was armed. <laughs> <laughs> so so they they wouldn't last very long. This is a group you mentioned uh, a couple times previously. So can you tell us more about the ILGWU and what that stands for and why they were so important to worker sports and just labor movement in general? Yeah, so the ILGWU, the International Ladies Garment Workers Union, um, like I said earlier, had this larger vision of what the union was supposed to be, um, had direct socialist contacts with Europe um, were directly inspired by worker sports and brought those ideas back um, and really implemented it in a mass way uh, in the 1930s. They are an important link because then they provide a lot of the organizers for the upsurge in the CIO by the uh, in the late 30s. Um, so they provide the example Basically, they're they're like the seed that finally germinates into this mass explosion of labor sports. Um, and aside, uh, I define I use the definition worker sport for Europe uh, to define the more like um, orientation around political parties. And then I use labor sports for the United States uh, because they're more oriented around unions, but they're. They at the time they saw themselves at the, as the same thing. Um, I just use one or the other to differentiate um, where we're talking about. So, can you tell us about Olga Madar? Who was she? Yeah, yeah, she's a really interesting figure. So, um, she moved to Detroit uh, as a teenager, and she comes from a very big family. Uh, she had 11 siblings, and they all end up in the auto industry as auto workers. 
Olga is incredibly good at sports. Uh, in high school, she's an all-star basketball, softball, and track star. Um, and in the 30s, um, she was recruited by Chevrolet to work in the factory, basically because she was good at sports. And so they wanted her to play on their softball team. Um, the company team. And she later says, like, I had no business being on the floor. Like, I should have been fired um, because, like, I wasn't a great worker, uh, but I was a great catcher. Um, it was, she was so good that there was gamblers in 1930s Detroit who would just look to see whatever team she was on and then bet on that team. <laughs> um, so she, uh, Basically, over the course of the 30s, she's she's involved in, in union politics. She works at various plants. She's on various softball teams and basketball teams. Uh, she starts to fall into socialist um, circles. Um, and then she's also getting her degree in physical uh, education um, in the summertime, basically as a part-time. And then when the war starts, she gets a job in the bomber plant. Um, and local 50, uh, in the Detroit area. And she's, she basically rises to become the leader of the sports recreational, uh, programs that the union is putting on. Um, and when, after the war, when the socialist faction rises to the leadership of the UAW, she's brought in to take over the UAW's international, um, uh, and by international, I mean the larger union. It, some some of these terms are a little tricky, um, but uh, so she takes over the UAW's um, recreational department and really um, helps build the union's. Uh, sports programs from what they were um she's also a key actor in the uaw's drive to desegregate bowling um and so bowling is the one of the last recreational sports that is segregated that's mostly because of the facilities um the bowling alleys are specifically segregated especially in detroit um and the American Bowling Congress is uh, specifically an all-white organization. So there's this big campaign to desegregate uh, bowling. And uh, they're largely successful, um, and they're able to integrate bowling. Now, why, is, why did they do this? Well, one of the big labor sports was bowling, and it was a real problem if your black members and your white members couldn't bowl together. Um, so she's a key part of that. She later uh, becomes pretty active in the uh, Parks and Recreation Commissions in Michigan, um, which is really expanding recreation to be accessible for working class people. Um, she's also the first president of the uh, Coalition of Labor Union Women in the early 70s. So she has a long career in labor. Um, and is very active, makes a difference in the lives of, of uh, many people. Uh, but the important thing to remember about her, she got her start as a softball ringer in the labor sports <laughs> movement. <laughs> 
seems like women then were very integral and important to the worker sports, labor sports movement. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, it's it's interesting because when you look back at these papers, you know, some things of the sort of casual sexism of the era just sort of make you cringe, but it's like they the thinking was just different. So the teams were usually called girls teams, like women's teams was more of a rare term. Like they would always say girls teams or here's the gals or whatever else. They still say that. Yeah, they do. But but like you do see women's sports more. Well, you see it much more in the things I follow, like in combat sports with the fighters, they call the women, the girls or the girls division right. or uh, guys and gals. They'll say that a lot. Right, right, right. I think boxing might be a lot more professional right. about it, but in MMA, it's still exactly like what you're describing. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, so th- there's that, but the, on the other hand, there are women's teams um, and women athletes. Um, and like they, they do make a, a real effort to include uh, women and there are women organizers and um, uh, they, um, you know, they're part of it, especially during the war when this Rosie the Riveter phenomenon of women workers and in industrial jobs becomes commonplace. Um, you see a real explosion of women's teams during the war. Can you tell us then about anti-racism in worker labor sports? Mm-hmm. Um, so like we were talking about when we're talking about the new left, the idea is to include um, workers of color. And they, the both the socialists and the communists really work hard to in, include especially black athletes in their teams. Don't you mean the old left then? Yes, the old left. So when we're talking about the new left, uh, it's more about like empowerment of communities. Well, when we're thinking about the the old left, um, that's more about like uh, integration. So having black and white uh, uh, workers and athletes work together and play together. Um, so you, you really do see just on most teams, if they had black workers there, the communists and the socialists uh, really made uh, efforts to include them. Um, and really try to break down those barriers. You know, it was, with some places was limited success. There was a real resistance by some white workers to um, playing with with uh, black workers. Um, but the socialists and the communist leadership did find that to be a, an important uh, project to accomplish to uh, break down those barriers, and you know, with good reason. Um, dividing workers in the time of a strike would be the downfall of your strike if you're divided all- along ethnicity. So even before major league sports were integrating black athletes, the worker labor leagues and sports were already doing it. Oh yeah, yeah, they they were integrated uh, much before the professional ranks were. Um, yeah, amongst their first uh, labor sports teams, you saw you saw black and white workers playing together. Um, yeah, it's at the elite level. Um, 
sports, I should say that they did have an interest in that. So one of the main campaigns of communist sports organizers was to pressure Major League Baseball to integrate. So breaking down these color lines? Yeah, yeah. Um, So you saw that through from 1937-36 to all the way up until Jackie Robinson makes uh, Major League Baseball. That's one of the main focuses of the New York communist sports organizers. So it seems like labor sports was ahead of the curve then as far as building inclusion, regardless of class, gender, or race. I mean, um, it seems like if we were to use the modern term, they were intersectional before the term existed. (laughs) Much before it existed. But unions weren't only doing sports, right? They were also doing recreational activities. Can you tell us about that? Um, So it depends on the union. But uh, in the ones that we've been talking about, yeah, they try to engage with what people are interested in. Um, so that could be a choir group. So you have plenty of labor choir groups. Uh, you'd learn some protest songs. Um, you have labor theater. The famous one by the International Lady Garment Workers Union is Pens and Needles. Um, and there's a pretty good, if you look it up on YouTube, there's um, some pretty good soundtracks of, of the songs that were sung. There was a Bar- Barbara Streisand singing some of them in the sixties, I believe. Um, but I've seen, I've seen all sorts of programs, the bigger unions. So such as local 600 of the UAW, which is in Dearborn at the Ford uh, river Rouge uh, plant, which was, it was a huge union. Um, and it was communist led. Um, but they had a very big recreational program. So I've seen as things from um, uh, pigeon collecting to um, um, to knitting groups to uh, book clubs. Weren't giant picnics also a part of these activities? Yeah, picnics were huge. <laughs> yeah, these these sort of social uh, groupings. Uh, I could send you some of the pictures, but oh my god, they were just enormous um um and sometimes you'd have ball games or boxing matches at them um and you'd have yeah people just be hanging out in the grass and eating and having a good time was something like picnics or these bigger events like let's say a softball game or a boxing match or something like that was it just to build solidarity or especially with picnics was it also to like maybe talk to people and talk to them about unions and why they should join and things like that um so most most of the time these big picnics were for people already part of the union or their families and friends um they certainly would encourage anybody who wasn't a member of the union to join at them. But it was also, yeah, it was about building solidarity, breaking down barriers through building relationships. Um, People who have fun together are more likely to want to strike together. If you're, if you're with your friends, you've made friends at these events, you know, that's useful for later on. You're more likely to want to back up, your brother or sister. 
it also paints a much more positive picture, right? Like uh, kind of using the uh, church analogy. If you're not really a church goer, but your friend invites you to their church and they do all these cool things and not only sports, but music and they have picnics, you're like, oh, I want to join that church, right? Yeah, yeah. So it creates a positive image. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And actually, that's how some of them painted it. Like, see, we're actually normal people. We're not just... <laughs> um, you know, trying to burn everything down. Like we also like to have fun. We forgot about that now. I think the fun part. <laughs> yeah, and you know, like sometimes they they you know have a bocce game or or um, whatever else. Um, yeah, I th I think that's a big part of it. Um, and that goes back to even the twenties. I I seen uh, communist uh, sporting events where. They're like, see, we're actually normal. We're, we're not going to bite your head off. <laughs> A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the show, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by joining Team Southpaw on Patreon. By becoming a member, you'll get access to bonus content like exclusive articles, fight previews, bonus episodes, transcripts of fight studies, and access to our private chat group on Discord. But more importantly, you will help us supplement the cost of the show, the incredible time and energy Sam and I put into making the show, and you'll be giving us some breathing room not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. So something you mentioned a couple times is bowling and softball we just think of these activities as just being around but what's the origin story of how they became part of our social fabric how they became part of work culture and how they became something that men and women could both participate in both of those are are sports that are easy to play um you you don't need to be particularly good uh, they're slower you can go at your own pace um, they had both been used by companies in the twenties to sort of, uh, build identification with the companies. So, and embracing these sports, the unions are trying and the radical organiz uh, organizers are trying to flip that on its head and, um, uh, you know, engage with what people are doing regardless um so softball is slower than baseball it's a little more accessible um it isn't specifically associated with uh women until much later um so it's it's just like a it's not going to mangle your hands as much as as uh, baseball which you know for a factory worker that actually does make a difference especially if you're like a um working in a skilled trade um and bowling is the same thing it's pretty easy it's not gonna damage you too much so something like football is gonna be harder for more people to play though there are certainly some labor sports football teams um but you know if you get a major concussion <laughs> and have to miss work that's going to be a problem it's interesting that these sports then kind of got big because of their accessibility, which seems like accessibility is something we're thinking about now, especially I think with something like softball, people were thinking about it a long time ago. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, softball is a, it's a 
accessible sport. Basketball too. Basketball is huge in cities, especially in New York City, in the um, 1920s and 30s, uh, especially in Jewish communities, because they're really in small spaces. And basketball is a perfect city sport. You can use a really small space. All you need is a court, which is not hard to set up. You could have, uh, you know, a peach basket or whatever and put it on a sign um, and hollow it out. And that's it. That's accessible too. Um, basketball's a very easy sport to play, and you don't need that many people. Unlike softball or baseball, which you need, you know, nine people to have a team, you'd need five people to have a team. With something like softball and maybe also bowling, then did they also become popular because they were attached to unions or work? I mean, they certainly contributed to to at least softball and bowling becoming huge um they're part of the current i wouldn't say they're the entire thing um and they certainly tapped into baseball they certainly tapped into to boxing but softball and and uh basketball or basketball they tapped into that was already a sort of urban uh thing that everybody did uh but the closest thing I would say to to helping popularize would be bowling and um, softball. Do you believe the reason for major league sports of today that they have unions is because of how unions were so married to sports when these sports were coming up? Nah. So there's attempts to form unions um, in baseball, and the basically since. Ever since there's been professional baseball, there's been attempts to form unions. It doesn't really take off in, though until the 60s. Um, before that, it was just quashed every time it happened. So the, ma- the Major League Baseball uh, Players Union um, is able to get its, its footing in the late 60s and becomes a permanent presence in the 70s. Um, and yeah, that's it's much later. The timeline just doesn't work. Um, uh, they're kind of separate too. Um, so when we think of labor sports, it's really a grassroots, bottom up. You don't have to be awesome. There are certainly awesome teams, um, particularly in bigger unions. Uh, but it's again, it's more important that you show up. It's not important that you're elite. And we're, when we're thinking about professional sports, we're really thinking about elite sports. You know, like, I don't, I'm sure you're athletic, but like, would you be able to compete at on one of these high level? For, for, <laughs> you know, like, it, it isn't really built. Professional sports are not built for you and me to play. Like, those are built for us to appreciate the elite level athleticism. Um, and I certainly am a huge sports fan and I love it. Um, but I can't play <laughs> with those people. Like they're much better than me. So was it baseball first then? So baseball is, is the first, uh, in the sixties and then basketball in the seventies and then, uh, football is in the eighties. Uh, so it's, it's one at a time. Were fans supportive during that era of the athletes unionizing? It's kind of split, you know. 
especially in as larger cultural trends turned against unions. Um, you know, it's a lot of the like, well, they're just spoiled athletes. They're paid much better than everybody else. And, you know, the counter to that is, yeah, but the owners make a lot more than everybody else. And the athletes should get a bigger cut of that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of gone by how, uh, popular culture has perceived unions. Um, so yeah, there's some pushback and some siding with the owners, some, uh, fan support, but I don't know. It's almost like a side question as far as popular support, um, in the sixties through, um, the present day of players unions. Um, but yeah, um, it's, it's kind of like a separate thing, um, than what I was doing. Um, I certainly engage with the fan culture, but the actual players unions of, of, uh, elite teams that it's, that's like a separate, um, I'm a little less interested in, in that sort of stuff just cause there's a lot less people involved in it. But it does give hope, right? That uh, you can't unionize later. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think during that period, um, from what I saw in, in say the twenties or the fifties, um, they were su- the labor sports were supportive of of the players' unions that were attempted to start. Um, but at the at the other time, it wasn't a big priority. <laughs> like they were more interested in bringing millions of impoverished workers into being able to live um, during the Great Depression. So whether uh, the players had a union or not, it was kind of like uh, cool support you guys, but you know, not my biggest priority right now. Skipping around the timeline a little bit, then prior to this period that you studied, uh, let's say the twenties, thirties to fifties there were some proto-worker movements, right, that existed prior. Can you tell us a bit about then the 48ers and their socialist fitness clubs? Yeah, that's much earlier. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so the 48ers were mostly Germans um, who had fled uh, after the 1848 revolutions. Um, They formed these fitness clubs, which were mostly around gymnastics. Um, and they, a lot of the, the turn movement, that's what the German term for these athletic clubs were, um, which, uh, how does that actually translate? I think Turner means gymnastics in German. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That checks out. Um, so the turn movement is is huge and it's not necessarily socialist, but the socialists do make inroads into the turn, uh, the Turner movement. Um, and you do see uh, turn organizations show up in the United States, particularly following German clubs, but it also spreads into Finnish um, communities. And just so before labor sports in the uh, United States, this you did see small socialist athletic clubs, and the uh, turn movement was huge in immigrant communities. Um, so the immigrant communities were, were mostly 
the sports they were playing were mostly gymnastics. Um, those were the most popular ones before uh, American sports stole their kids, basically. <laughs> these 48ers and with these finish halls, were they just, as far as socialist clubs, were they just hangouts for them to do gymnastics or did they also do some community work? Uh, depends on the clubs. There, It was pretty decentralized. It wasn't like there was this larger organization. Now, a lot of them were, were involved in the Socialist Party. Um, and then in the 20s, some of them uh, did split off with the communists. Um, but yeah, there, it was pretty decentralized. It really depended on the club. Um, a lot of it was just hangout. Uh, which is, you know, I think that's important to have a place for members of the community to go and just hang out. Um, some of it was, uh, as far as outreach into your communities, it was pretty limited by ethnicity. So like your Fen halls were basically mostly Fennish Americans or Fens. Uh, a lot of the turn uh, clubs were really limited to uh, German or uh, German immigrants, um, German Americans or Germans, I should say. Um, and they weren't able to spread beyond that. Um, same thing with Jewish athletic clubs. Um, so it, it's like overlap here. Some of them are political. Some of them are socialists. Some of them are doing larger things. Some of them are more of a, a hangout. Um, and some of them are all of the above. Um, it really depends. And when the communists and socialists tried to start getting leagues and a more radical uh, coordination, they do lean on these socialist athletic clubs. So a lot of them end up joining. Uh, so the turn clubs or uh, soccer clubs or whatever else. I had uh, read that some of these socialist 48ers had worked with the abolitionist John Brown. <laughs> yeah um so um that goes into a larger political question uh you think about eras of what the left is working on or people interested in building a better society um the 48ers are definitely the political left in the 1850s when a lot of them end up in the United States because they have to flee after their revolutions fail. And what were those revolutions? In the 1848, the revolutions were to create more liberal democratic societies away from the um, autocratic uh, monarchies of Europe. Uh, so particularly the uh, Prussia, Austria, um, France, um, and sort of monarchies, uh, Italy is another one. Um, if you think about Germany in 1848, there is no German state. There's hundreds of German statelets, uh, ruled by individual princes. So they're trying to overthrow that and create, uh, a liberal, um, more open society. And they fail largely. Um, uh, with the exception of France, briefly. Uh, but yeah, that's kind of getting into the weeds. But anyway, so they the ones who end up in the United States who are still interested in social justice, um, yeah, they do end up getting involved with people like John Brown, 
or Frederick Douglass, um, they get involved in uh, causes for human liberty. And one of the big ones in the United States is abolition of slavery and racial justice. Um, so getting uh, involved with somebody like John Brown, who, you know, is really into this direct action uh, version of abolitionism in which he's going to Kansas to fight against um, slave owners who are trying to make Kansas a slave state. And he goes and he he fights them with machetes. Um, and then later on, he raids a federal arsenal <laughs> and tries to start a slave revolt, which indirectly leads to the Civil War. Um, so, you know, these, these are the sort of radical currents, um, going on in the 1850s that the 48ers were involved with. Yeah. So there were, a lot of them were very political. It goes counter to what people assume or maybe indirectly learn at school, which is this idea that ideas of social justice are fairly new or that people in the past couldn't fathom such a thing, or especially white people in the past couldn't fathom such a thing like this. And you actually look at the history, right? And you see that, no, there were people just as radical as they are today back then. Yep. Yep. A hundred percent. I think that's, that's important about studying history is just because a lot of people held a view that we would now consider uh, terrible doesn't mean there weren't people who were criticizing that or fighting against it. Um, it you can't just say like somebody was a, a person of their time because there was other people who were not quote unquote people of their time. Um, yeah. So, and, and you know, when you look at history and you study people like this, you are struck by this. In some cases they are, they do have views that are seem out of date, but in other cases they have views that seem really, um, you know, with our time. Well, we can also look at people of our time, our present day, and and say like your views seem really out of date. <laughs> so it goes both ways. Something you mentioned a few times was something we talked about a little bit already is boxing, and I, I actually want to add pro wrestling to this because during the time of labor sports, let's say 20s, 30s, 40s, unions were big, but so was boxing and so was pro wrestling. They were very big. I would say bigger than a lot of the major league sports of today. So why do you think boxing and pro wrestling never unionized like other sports? Um, I think that a lot of that is because of the individual nature of the sport. It's a you know one fighter against another that it's it's harder to build like um, solidarity um, around that and but in the time I'm looking at you know I wouldn't even single them out because none of the professional sports were unionized um, <laughs> <laughs> so like it did take them a while and and you know like today like pro wrestling and and boxing and MMA you know like they are more individualized and they are uh sort of fighting an upstream battle against unionizing cuz employers just hate unions 
they've all tried and they've all been squashed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the important thing about history is to understand that that with the baseball or football or basketball players unions, they also tried for decades um, and failed. Um, you keep trying and and you know you might fail and it might be gone for a generation and then it comes back because the same issues are there. Um, just like just because the old left died doesn't mean that the ideas aren't still there and the new left sort of takes up the mantle um, less than a decade after the old left dies. Related to that, then uh, boxing and pro wrestling, as I mentioned, were very popular, but then they became fringe activities and even fringe sports to watch. And they do have a very hardcore fan base, but it's nowhere near the popularity, but not only popularity, but just like the mainstream acceptability as some of the other sports, right? And that seems to track the rising and the fringing of the left. Do you think boxing and pro wrestling were affected by the same socio-political factors as the left, like immigration change or with urbanization or suburbanization? If I was to guess, um, and I haven't studied this extensively, but I would say, yeah, the suburbanization is a big factor. I think you you have to look at who the boxers are. Um, so boxers um, in general come from you almost entirely you come out of poverty. Um, so you know, rich people aren't really going into boxing, not professionally anyway. Like you might do it for fun but you're not going to become a professional boxer. Um, so in the um, 19th century, most of the American boxers are Irish. Um, by the 20s, that's shifted. So most of the, prof- uh, not most, but a lot of the big ones are Jewish um, with some black boxers. People forget about this time of uh, great Jewish boxers, which actually seems to coincide with the history of Yiddish anarchism. So it seems like boxing especially seems to track uh, left politics, and it seems like all of it is a byproduct of immigration and poverty. Yeah, it's who's at the bottom um, in cities. It's it's harder for black uh, workers uh, or or black athletes to get into boxing because most uh, black athletes live in the South. It's really rural and boxing really thrives in cities. So you can have gyms. Um, so, you know, there are a few uh, really elite black boxers and, you know, they also face segregation and really backlash against uh, the thought of white boxers losing to black boxers. But uh, post-war, it's it's interesting. You almost overnight you see um, Jewish boxers largely disappear from boxing very quickly, um, and you see in the fifties the rise of black and Latino boxers sort of take the stage, um, and you know you the Friday night fights were on uh, TV. I think it was ABC that had them, so anybody who had a TV could tune in to these Friday Friday night fights. Um, those those were enormously popular. Um, 
So the question is, why did it become sort of marginal? There's a few things going on it, the, in the 70s and 80s. Um, it becomes harder to watch boxing because you have to pay for pay-per-view or HBO. Uh, the other thing is they become really, really niche and that less and less people are actually boxing, um, except for people in extreme poverty, especially in cities. Um, so it becomes something that is like an other um, in American sports. Um, and today you, you really see in boxing anyway, it, it's, it's really focused on international. Like there aren't that many great American boxers. There's some, but um, internationally, um, our international boxers are, are much bigger than they used to be. Um, now, and some of that is because of shifts too, though. Like fight sports, you think about, it's shifted away from boxing. And so you have more like MMA or whatever else. Um, and, you know, boxing just isn't as popular if you're into fight sports. Um, pro wrestling, um, to be honest, I know less about the <laughs> the uh, political history of it. Um, you know, I obviously grew up in a time where I loved WWF. Um, uh, and I basically have followed uh, pro wrestling. But um, besides things like La Lucha in Mexico or or like more cultural uh, things that, or um, so in labor sports, wrestling I saw wasn't really, wasn't really like pro sports that we think of. It was, it was more like uh, Greek style. Yeah. 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 College wrestling. Um, like, <laughs> you know, I definitely have friends who are into like punk rock versions of pro wrestling. Um, and you know, that that's more like, um, there's a storyline and there's clear, uh, villains and protagonists and, um, and you know, it's, it's, I wouldn't say it's not a sport because it is, you definitely have to be very athletic. Um, but you know, it's, it's sort of a different animal. Well, what I'm seeing, cause if you look at the timeline, I think it happens the same time as the left is declining and the popularity is the same. Not that they were necessarily tied together, but it seems like the same factors that affected the fall of one affected the other. Maybe not the same factors, but some of the cultural factors. So maybe not the Red Scare, but as people immigrated here and bought into the American dream and apple pie and we want to do American sports and capitalism is so great and we want to be middle class and move to the suburbs that's definitely true then these bottom sports as you call it right these like poverty sports in a way that were very popular stopped being popular almost maybe they were seen as lower class right and the same thing with uh, i think leftist politics is just kind of like with this petite bourgeois mentality you're like no, no 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 that's for losers i'm a future millionaire so i don't buy into that stuff anymore yeah some of those larger forces are important to look at. So if you look at the second half of the 20th century, most of, of the boxers are black in the United States. Um, you know, you look at the Muhammad Ali fights, like almost all of his opponents were, were other black fighters. Um, 
And if you look at something like soccer, soccer is an interesting look into the how these um, these trends affect um, the sports that people play. So soccer is actually very popular in the United States in the early 20th century, particularly around immigrant communities. Um, it sort of dies when the Great Depression happens uh, because people move more to like baseball and basketball. Um, and soccer becomes in the 50s on a suburban white sport, um, a suburban upper middle class sport even. So it's, it's gate kept. Um, you know, it, it becomes something that um, you can put your professional, uh, you know, your future a uh, professional um, doctor or future whatever else uh, of the, I don't know, I'm not being very articulate here, but um, <laughs> the um, in the 60s on, soccer becomes something for the white professional class. Um, and one of, some of the reasons is because it's less violent, uh, so you won't get hurt like you would playing football. Um, it doesn't have the quote-unquote tinge of the ghetto that basketball does. Um, and it doesn't have the high rate of failure that baseball does or softball, so not striking out. People still use that to describe boxing, a ghetto sport. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, basketball is also the same because uh, basketball was considered a Jewish sport and um, around the same time of all the great Jewish fighters. Um, and then in the post-war, it becomes considered a black sport. Um, uh, but back to soccer for a second. If you look at today, uh, there's two big soccer cultures in the United States. That suburban white soccer culture that's mainly upper middle class and suburban. And then the immigrant soccer culture that's mainly Mexican. Um, and they're totally separate. Like they're totally segregated. You never see a, a suburban white soccer team playing a Mexican um, urban soccer team. Never. I, I've never heard of that. Um, and, you know, one looks to Europe and one looks to Latin America. And that, you know, that's sort of a way that race and class and, and suburbanization have played out. Yeah. You see something similar with wrestling. And when I say wrestling, in this context, I mean like collegiate wrestling, the kind that you do in school. But instead of like necessarily class differences, I would say it's just racial differences, meaning it's still a very bottom sport. So if you go to urban areas, it's a lot of like Latino kids or uh, black kids. And then wrestling is also very big in the Midwest and rural areas. And it's like poor rural kids are doing it. If you look at wrestling wherever you go, it's all the poor kids are playing. So if the poor kids are white, then they're the wrestlers. If the poor kids are black, then they're the wrestlers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Something I learned from looking more at your research is how so many immigrants during this time were already socialist. Uh, and then during that time that you studied, so many Americans were at least connected to unions, if not outright socialist. So the left or socialism used to be quite popular and normal at one point, just across the globe. So what happened? Cold War happens. <laughs> um, the, these uh, 
radicalism begins to be associated with uh, with the Soviet Union or Maoist China, and um, these things are are there's a polarization um, where if you're a hardcore radical, you're automatically called a communist. Um, and you see some remnants of that, even with the baby boomer generation, you know, that was the label they were starting to put on Bernie Sanders. Um, and while that wasn't really resonating with, with people our age, you know, um, millennials or, or zoomers, um, because we don't really have that experience where that would resonate, but yeah, hundred percent the cold war, um, that, uh, these things become more polarized and less acceptable. And in fact, during the McCarthyist repression, a lot of the people who hadn't really been communists but were fine with working with them during the Popular Front are targeted. They're like, well, you hung out with them, like, yeah, but I wasn't one. I wasn't one. So that that's where the term pinko actually comes from. That you weren't a red, but you were a shade of pink. So then the Cold War took it up another notch where even if people were like, no, 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 I'm not a communist. I'm not into communism. But, you know, maybe your best friend is. So you're like, cool, we'll hang out. The Cold War changed this so that anybody who was related to socialism or communism or was a radical became kind of a leper. So it taught the social consciousness to just want to avoid them at all costs. Yeah. Yeah. Or even their the ideas. You didn't even want to sound like uh one and you know people push back against this in the during the new left um but there's still this this um assumption that there's there's uh the soviet union is behind this or or um you know there's this dastardly plot um by the international communist conspiracy and you know that's not totally unique to the cold war like that stuff has been these like conspiracy um like fights against the uh socialist plots that's been going on for since the 19th century but it really ratchets up because of the global nature of the cold war it's so weird it's like this belief that if russia and the soviet union never existed none of us would ever be talking about socialism or communism like it wouldn't exist right yeah, in ways the Russian Revolution is very inspirational for people on the left, um, but the Cold War uh, makes it—it's—it's um, it's like being uh, between a rock and a hard place during the Cold War to be a leftist. Like you really had to like, like, no, I'm not into the Soviet Union, but. A friend of mine who's a labor organizer in the 90s, and he said when he realized the Soviet Union had just fallen, he's like, wait a minute, I can talk about class now. <laughs> so meaning that uh, it had taken up so much of the political discourse, Russia. And, you know, there's certainly leftists who didn't give a shit. Uh, but like cu culturally as a whole, yeah, it's it's huge. Um and, you know, looking back to why so many immigrant groups uh, became socialists or why socialism really thrived, 
especially amongst Eastern Europeans and Germans um, or Italians. Um, these groups not only had access to the ideas that were around and wherever they were coming from, but they were often also radicalized by how they were treated when they came to the United States because they were treated so poorly um, that even if they weren't radicals, when they left wherever they were leaving, uh, they became radicals in the United States. So that's why these ideas were so fertile in immigrant communities. Then even this idea that communism started because of Soviet Union doesn't work in a timeline because all these immigrants were already interested in socialism and these movements were already big way before the Cold War. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that that's a huge um, fallacy that like it was foreign outside agitators that were bringing <laughs> these ideas like that's never been true. Like people actually can think for themselves. I see that in a bit of Bernie Sanders, a microcosm of it, where people blame Bernie Sanders for people not voting. And it's like, <laughs> before Bernie Sanders ever existed, most Americans didn't vote anyway. What are you talking about? Yeah, really? <laughs> Blaming Sanders for that is ridiculous. Like, Yeah, that's a pre-existing problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there's so many people who are just totally... Um, just delusion by the whole political system that they've just sort of given up. Um, like, and that's why uh, rates of non-voting are higher amongst disadvantaged people. Not only is there uh, harder to access um, uh, voting, but it's also like people are just like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> so we talked about the three different worker Olympics. Can you tell us about the People's Olympics? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, so the, in 1936, despite um, massive calls to cancel the Berlin Olympics um, that the uh, IOC, the International Olympic Committee, had scheduled. So 1936, the Nazis are firmly in power in Germany and are going to use the Berlin Olympics as a propaganda tool. Um, so there's calls to cancel these Olympics, and when the IOC uh, fails, the uh, two worker sport organizations, which, again, have been reduced in size because of the losses, um, the communists and the socialists by this point are actually working together, um, and they decide to put on a protest Olympics against uh, the Nazi Olympics. So in Spain where the Popular Front government has come to power, an alliance of socialists, communists, and anarchists, um, uh, they agree to host the this protest Olympics, and it's called the People's Olympics. Um, and this is scheduled for uh, June of 1936. And in Barcelona, um, I actually followed the American delegation when they traveled there. They're struck by this revolutionary situation as the Popular Front government is unleashing a lot of the leftist organizing and revolutionary ideas. Um, so the day that the People's Olympics are supposed to happen is when the fascist uprising occurs. Um, and there's three days of fighting before the 
fascist uprising is put down in Barcelona. And then it sort of devolves into the Spanish Civil War. And the People's Olympics are unfortunately canceled because of the fascist um, rebellion. Um, so it's it's this this moment that could have been. Um, and there were thousands of athletes in Barcelona when the fighting broke out. Um, but unfortunately, they're canceled. Uh, there is a many People's Olympics that's staged by a lot of the refugees from uh, the so the athletes who had gone to the People's Olympics and are forced to leave. Um, they stage a little one in Paris, but it's you know it's not the same thing. Um, so yeah, I mean the, the People's Olympics could have been huge. Um, there is a small. Uh, Olympic Games in New York City, but it's it's a few hundred people staged by the International Ladies Garment Workers Union and some of the communist groups. Um, uh, but yeah, again, it's a few hundred as opposed to to thousands that the People's Olympics in Barcelona would have been. Yeah, it's also a weird fallacy, right? Where you look at the Olympics as an example of this liberal centrist prior to World War II were kind of accepting of Hitler and the Nazis, where it was the communists and the leftists opposing them and protesting them. And same thing with the Olympics. They participate in this Olympics. They go through with the Nazi Olympics, where it's the leftists, the communists, the socialists are saying, no, don't do it. And they do a protest event. Yeah, yeah. And then the fascists actually get it canceled because they're trying to overthrow this this democratically elected socialist government. Yeah, because you got to listen to both sides. Why are you protesting this? There's good people on both sides. We got to unite with the fascists and we got to bring it all together and we got to listen to both sides and work across the aisle, right? <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting with the Olympics. Um, the next one scheduled, um, which leftists were already starting to organize to try to stop, was in Tokyo in 1940 um it obviously never happens because of world war ii uh but like the olympic the ioc has a pretty bad history of working with with um right-wing governments because you know they just care about the money and there's another weird confusion regarding this period especially i think for americans where a lot of americans think the communists were the fascists were in spain right it was the communists versus the fascists, and that's how it was in Europe. So can you define for us then what is fascism? Yeah, so fascism is um, a, a right-wing uh, movement uh, where they sort of dissolves the separation between uh, economic and political life and where the nation or the race becomes um, the most important um, thing that unites people. Um, it uses um, uh, state power to enforce um, traditional sort of uh, life or what is seen as traditional life. Um, it seldomly actually threatens uh, big business. Um, so unlike communism, where 
where the state takes over uh, big business. Um, in fascism, you have like usually they're an alliance more, um, and you see that in Italy and Germany and elsewhere. So, so socialism is more the focus is on class and and uh, workers whether it be through the party or unions or um, the state um, are supposed to be the, the dominant force for change um, and nationality or race is supposed to uh, be secondary um, or sort of dissolve. So they have very different, like so, some of the things they do are similar and that Marxist-Leninist states have, you know, and fascist states, they, they put a lot on force and uh, violent change, but their goals and their orientation are very different, and there's reasons why they, <laughs> above all, hate each other. Going back to sports then, out of today's sports, what sport do you think is the most left-wing? Oh, man, that's tough. Um, would you say basketball? Yeah, I'd lean toward basketball, at least the pro level. Um, it's also fairly easy to play. Um, so it's fairly widespread. Um, yeah, it all depends though. How about this then? What about the most right-wing sport? Probably NASCAR. <laughs> like if you go to a NASCAR meet, you're going to see Confederate flags and, um, Probably you'll see some people wearing racist t-shirts or selling racist t-shirts. Um, I'd definitely say that that um, like auto racing is like really linked into like white identity and especially in like the South, but not limited to the South. Um, which is kind of interesting because the history of auto racing is as uh, moonshine runners. You know, outrunning the cops and your fast cars, um, and but in the seventies and sixties, there was like a backlash against like uh, the new left, where they sort of embraced conservative uh, culture, NASCAR. Um, so yeah, I would I would say race car driving. Then do you think a lot of it is because of regionality? because of where it's popular in that same area, white identity is popular. So it just kind of blended together. Yeah. Yeah, probably. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it is some NASCAR is, while it's nationally popular, it's especially popular and, and like bastions of white conservatism um, and white identity uh, politics. Um, yeah, I mean, as far as left wing, it's, it's, that's really hard to say. Um, I do want to lean toward basketball, but you know, I can't say that like you go to an NBA game or a college basketball game that like you're going to see like, <laughs> like left wing shit in, in the stands. Well, I didn't say like pure left wing, just the most. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the players certainly are the most. Um, in the NBA, at least. 
I would even say the commentary is a lot more left wing, and even how uh, writers write and talk about the athletes is a lot more left wing. If we're talking at least about social justice, you know, like in other sports, even though they're trying to be professional mainstream, they'll still use a lot of racialized commentary. Yeah, especially in football. Yeah, and especially in MMA. But in basketball, they try to pay particular attention to uses of like making uh, statements about them being some kind of a beast or making references to them being like some kind of animal, right? So, yeah. <laughs> the thing that struck me as of recent in the last few years is when Donald Sterling, the owner of the LA Clippers, got pushed out. And, you know, that guy was around forever, but like, it was the players that got him out more than anything. Like they threatened to strike if, if he wasn't, if he was still there. Yeah. Do you think that would have happened, let's say in football or in baseball? No, I can't see it. Yeah, I can't see it either. And, you know, it might be some of it that there's less players in basketball than those sports. Um, so it's easier to do it. But yeah, I, I, I think some of it, it's, it's like the, um, there's been, uh, because of Black Lives Matter in the last decade or so, like um, that that sort of political activism is really stronger and and amongst Black people in the United States. Um, so, like the white solidarity has been there's some, but it's been like not enough <laughs> um, at in the elite professional. So, like baseball. Uh, which are there's not that many black athletes. Um, it's mostly Latino or white. Um, you know, there wasn't much of of the kneeling that you saw in the NFL or NBA, in which there is a lot of black athletes. Do you find any parallels to today as far as recreational or sports activities that seems to closely mirror the worker labor sports culture of the past where you're like, huh, that's kind of getting big on the left. That kind of reminds me of what was happening in the twenties to fifties. Yeah. Well, um, like you said at the beginning of the, this interview, like a lot of it's young, a lot of it's new, uh, because there, there's this broken, uh, loss of history and the new left really didn't do much of it. Um, so a lot of it's very new, like the anti-fascist gyms or um, uh, whatever else. And, you know, some of it's it's more focused in Europe. Like I, I don't see a ton in the United States uh, until very recently. Like, But you have like groups like the um, Eastern Cowboys and Cowgirls in, um, in Britain or... Um, Oh, what is that German called? St. Pauli uh, Soccer Club. Um, or, uh, yeah. So the ones I have seen, there is some like uh, punk rock clubs and leagues in the United States. And then, yeah, more recently, especially with the Trump years, I have started hearing of like anti-fascist left-wing sports fans. I would say the biggest thing isn't even sports related. It's still part of physical culture. But I would say weightlifting in recent years has become a very popular leftist activity. Yeah, 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 totally. And, you know, I, I kind of have a big tent idea of what sports is that I get some pushback. So, like, I actually include yoga 
as a sport, even though I know uh, I when I've said that, some yoga people have pushed back and said like, well, it's not supposed to be competitive. And I feel like it's different. I'm like, well, it's it's like a physical activity still. Yeah, I think it's uh, under the bigger umbrella. I like to use the term physical culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, yeah, it's just kind of funny that interesting that you use that because physical culture was a term that the communists used in the 20s to the present. <laughs> like that's still what they'd say in Cuba, physical culture. For what? Um, for uh, like the larger state run sports like baseball and whatever. They call it physical culture. Um, it's pretty different than like grassroots uh, labor sports, but it, you know, it's similar sort of thinking of like mass involvement. No, I think that's where the term came from is from the communists. I mean, even today, I know some right wing people who use that term knowing that's where it's from, because especially in uh, weightlifting or gym stuff, but it also permeates to all sports because so much of what we know about strength training for sports came from Eastern Bloc. Yeah. So they use those terms almost like, look, I'm not a communist. Maybe I'm right wing, but I got to give props to where it came from. I know about weight training because of the Russians or because of the Germans or blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. So it is that term. That's where I got it from. I heard it from these like back in the past when I was really into fitness, you go to these message boards and a lot of these message boards for fitness was right wing people. Right. But there were stands for Soviet style training and stuff like that. So they would use a lot of those terms. You even have it today where uh, with kettlebells, I know a lot of right-wing people who love kettlebells and they'll call each other comrades, <laughs> but not like the way we use it, but they know where that term came from because they're giving like homage. I think because there is this right-wing thing to want to give reverence to the past, right? To this hearkening back nostalgia for the past. So in that way, yeah, I think physical culture works and even the right-wing use that term knowing that it comes from communist roots. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah, and you know, it's like the state um sponsored sports programs. Um and the idea is you get everybody physically fit and if there's ever a war, your population will be in good shape. And um they still do that in in uh Cuba for instance. Um so like their baseball is so good because they really identify people very young. Uh and if they want to be baseball players, they will give them all the support they need. Yeah, I've seen uh, old school strength coaches like Westside Barbell, people who are like very reactionary, right? When somebody interviews them and asks them, how do you create the best strength athlete? How do you do this or that? They'll say with a caveat, well, this isn't a popular opinion. People aren't going to like this. But the only way you could do that is if we lived in a communist country. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. It's like weird where they themselves don't have that politics. They still are able to respect it in some way yeah and you know the east germans um that was the same thing it's just it, it was from a very young age you'd be getting that support um the closest thing that we have in the united states is is the pe um you know gym when you're in elementary through high school that kind of stops after you're an adult like that sort of support I think PE, though, is why also people don't like sports. Yeah, <laughs> that's the other part of it. Um, yeah, and that I don't have direct evidence because I haven't done uh, a deep dive like I have labor sports. But that's my suspicion is why the left um, rejected sports in the, in the new left to the present was because a lot of leftists are like nerds or whatever or or like 
come from subcultural backgrounds where they got picked on by the jocks or whatever. And like, there's sort of this like inner rejection of all those because they weren't, they weren't able to be part of that. And they were picked on and bullied by um, the, the jocks. Um, And then they sort of take that into adulthood where they're like, well, fuck all that. I would say that's a very American thing though. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. And I think that might be partly because of the PE and the like, um, you know, like uh, grammar school through high school uh, sponsorship of sports is very like, like kid and teenager focused and not so much like, like, well, what about what, what makes sports awesome? What makes playing sports awesome? I think it's, it's best when you do it with people you actually like being around and, and like hanging out with, or you get to watch people you actually know. Like those, those are really uh, empowering things, especially if you're doing it in healthy ways um, and social ways that you wouldn't normally have access to. Like um, those make a difference, especially when you're an adult. I noticed when I talk to people from other countries outside of the U.S. and even knowing Korean culture, there isn't such a delineation between chalk and nerd. Yeah, totally. And also some of these places don't even have a word for nerd or jock. And if they do, they have to use the American English term because <laughs> it's something new. So it's almost like maybe through media, these tropes yeah, on top of PE were kind of a message to Americans. And then it's almost like life imitating art. They put themselves in those categories. And then, you know, you look at movies like Revenge of the Nerds, or right. <laughs> all those types of media. And then you're like, oh, I'm this and you're that. Yeah. And, and I feel like that's kind of, it might be why we've seen in recent years, uh, like some of that breaking, breaking down, because I feel like um, youth uh, s- subcultural sectarianism has fallen by the wayside because of social media in the last decade or so. I think that might be a good development. Um, So like, I don't know when I was growing up, like the punk rockers would fight with the, the um, people and to like rap or, or pop music or whatever else. Like you were, you were, you had to be, be part of one genre. Well, today I see that falling away. Like there's a lot of combination of, of genres and, and subcultures and like people don't attach themselves so much with, with one or the other. And I, I feel like it's being, it's becoming more acceptable to participate in like sports, especially like empowering ones. Like, you know, I'm, I'm not really into like, the fight sports just because i don't like getting punched in the head um but like i i totally think it's very empowering for people who do and like i totally support that like whatever people um whatever they need to use to like like as a tool to to get to a better place and discipline themselves and and like raise themselves up and other people around them you know do it by, by any means necessary to borrow another quote. 
Yeah, I think the internet got rid of a lot of silos. Yeah. I mean, you do have the power of the internet. Like, it's kind of like a steroid. You can get more niche and, like, kind of get deep inside baseball on something. Right. But in general, it's removed all these silos. So when you go on social media, you'll see posts and memes about certain sports things that you would have never cared about. And maybe you still don't know, but you can't, like, erase it from your feed, right? Yeah. Or another example is memes. Like, Somebody can say, I don't know anything about wrestling, but you do because you've seen enough memes where oh, yeah. <laughs> somebody who said, I don't know anything about wrestling 20 years ago, that's different from somebody saying it today, meaning they know a bunch, but not that much, right? Yeah. For yeah, somebody yeah. in the past could literally not know anything. They could live in a life where they've run into nothing about pro wrestling. Yeah. Like I see weird things about weird genres of music or TikTok. That is not my world, but I can't avoid it. Yeah. It's just harder to, to escape from all this you just see it on the niches like for instance that uh show uh what is it tiger king or whatever um i've not seen any of it but i know the basic plot (laughs) i know basically what happens i know that's the other thing you don't have to even like see it or consume it and you know 90 percent of it (laughs) yeah i don't i don't feel like i need to see it now because like i've seen everybody talking about it um there was uh, a player, I'm a Philadelphia sports fan. Um, there's uh, Joel Embiid, who's a Cameroonian. Um, he grew up playing soccer, didn't have much interest in basketball, but he's also seven foot. So he started getting pushed into basketball. He didn't know how to play at all. So he started watching white dudes shooting hoop on YouTube. <laughs> like, And he learned how to play that way and watching like, clips of kobe bryant or whatever like and he he basically learned how to play basketball from youtube now he's an all-star nba player the internet has created this flynn effect right where the flynn effect is about iq scores going up because people are more aware of the stuff on the iq tests where i think that same thing is happening period flynn effect on everything where you can't avoid knowing about stuff every niche topic right i remember like 20 years ago there could be people who've never even heard of the term anime. Whereas today, even if you've never watched one, you're aware of what that is. You know what they look like. You know the aesthetic. You know 80% about what it's about. You know some of his humors just because you can't avoid it anymore. So it's like everybody is going to score better and better on like some trivia questionnaire or some pop media trivial pursuit kind of thing because we're all just becoming more and more aware. Yeah. And I, I think that's bringing it back to like left wing sports. That is something that the internet is positive for is that like if you are a left wing sports, um, even just a fan, like you're fairly isolated. Like if you had opinions on how you thought sports should be that were very different than what they are, um, <laughs> like you might be able to tell one or two people but now with the internet you know you have whole groups of like left-wing fans or like people like dave zyron's work in journalism like have become really widespread and accessible um like uh you know i'm in a anarchist fantasy baseball league <laughs> like like you know that would have been unheard of um at some points but, you know, 
like that stuff is there's there's hidden histories like the worker sport and labor sports movement where that would have been very normal some equivalent of that in the 1930s um uh so you know there's always the possibility of building something so we can bring it back so we have these like anti-fascist gyms um and openly left-wing athletes or even just regular recreational leagues where we have uh ground level socialists or anarchist teams or whatever zapatista uh soccer leagues which i which exist so i have some questions now from some of our listeners yeah shoot claudio wanted me to ask about further reading what are some books to read around this subject okay some books that i would recommend um so thinking about a uh, worker sport in europe the story of worker sport by amd kruger um another recent one playing as if the world mattered an illustrated history of activism in sports by gabriel kuhn and gabriel kuhn has done a lot of good work on um worker sport the history of worker sport and activism in sports in more recent years um some other good ones press box red the story of lester rodney the communist who helped break the color line in american sports um by erwin silber um another one on the repression of left-wing sports and in general the like leftist culture uh, a road to peace and freedom the International Workers' Order and the Struggle for Economic and Civil Rights, 1930 to 1954, by Robert M. Zecker. Let's move to the next question then. Stephen Gary wanted me to ask, is this movement, this worker labor sports movement, something that could happen again? And if so, what are some of the steps we need to take? Oh, man. <laughs> um, it would be different. I'll say that. Uh, it would look differently because we're just structured differently now um it's deindustrialized in the united states and a lot of europe like you don't have factories um but i do think it's possible like we were talking about it would probably have to be coordinated uh through internet um it might be start around more subcultural like punk rock or um hip-hop or whatever else um and it would have to take into account sports that are popular and accessible so it could be bowling it could be softball but maybe it's also mma or muay thai or whatever else um so i think the first steps are forming clubs finding like-minded individuals not only that you can talk to but also play these sports with. Um, second is supporting people who are doing that. So showing up to their things, um, not rejecting sports totally or encouraging people who do to quit it. <laughs> um, and like, yeah, support them in the same way that you do bands um, or particular authors um, or movies. You know, you support your 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 clubs or your athletes that are doing these things that are outspoken you make it more normal 
Um, and let's see. So once you get that going, then you form your leagues and you make that bigger. You, you build these, these, uh, labor Olympics or, um, or workers Olympics or whatever else you make these things bigger. You build on what you've already done and then you, you know, you overthrow the whole thing. (laughs) (laughs) Michael David wanted me to ask, why are there so many liberals to leftists who look down on sports or make fun of it as sports ball or low class, which is highly contradictory, especially for the left to punch down. So what happened there? Yeah, I mean, I think we talked about this, uh, but a lot of that is because of history of this of subcultures and and like yeah they sort of get into that like jock um, sort of snobbishness um, where they just won't engage with it at all, and they really do miss an opportunity. Um, for organizing and engaging with what people are interested in. Um, so I think that's some of it that like, there's like historical snobbishness. Weren't even the communists snobbish about it. Some of them were, we have to be reading theory. We can't waste our time with sports. Yeah. There were, there were debates and, you know, before the 1920s, like that was pretty prevalent. Like the, Leftists didn't do all that much with sports besides the um, individual athletic clubs. Um, I th- I think that when you see how effective it is in reaching people, that that sort of changed. And you know, I think that people need uh, like obviously like right to housing and food and and good pay and and uh, racial and environmental justice and gender justice these are all very important but i think you can like lace them into sports because people are interested in sports that and they follow sports um and people who are not leftists who are apolitical or even conservative are into sports and if you can engage with people using sports as your your uh, medium then like you can actually reach people and convince them. <laughs> Martin Kearney was wondering if rather than building from below what you were talking about from immigrants to poor people from the bottom up, if we are now, we as in the left are now building from the middle, from the educated middle class and no longer from the bottom. There's probably some of that. I mean, the difference between now and... um then is there's because of the legacy of the labor movement there was uh, a bigger much bigger middle class than had existed then um so you have a lot more people going to college and a lot more people in sort of middle class jobs um and that's that's the legacy of the suburbanization and the baby boomer generation um and that's becoming less and less um, like, I'm not sure how many people are going to have access to jobs in college in the next few years, <laughs> and less and less people have been. 
maybe that's why now the left coming up is so young is because you had the baby boomers, this middle class, and then now young people are growing up without maybe without job prospects. They have to work a bunch of gigs. They have a ton of debt. So they're becoming the new bottom. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, yeah, it's a down downwardly mobile. And there was certainly a lot of poor folks and and working class folks and and whatever else uh but i think that's that's probably some of it that that um building from the middle like yeah there's people who are middle class educated people um but you know we're not in the same place we we don't have a a left-wing sports movement now so it doesn't have to be that way like and i think that overall as as I talked about, like in the fifties, there's a shift from participation to consumerism, um, and because because of that, it actually does reach a lot more people. Like a lot more people can just turn on the TV and watch a game or listen to it on the radio or or stream it or whatever. So it it becomes reachable to more people, um, even if less people are participating in it. Which means that you can actually still build it from below. That is taking working class sports fans and like, you know, pushing, pushing to make something different. Like the potential is still there. Um, even if like, like I'm assuming what he means by pushing from the middle is like the middle class. Um, uh, yeah, that's that's very true, and that's you know that's not unique to left wing sports, or even like putting their wants first. Right, 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 right. Yeah, um, <laughs> you know, I, I I I like soccer and all, but in the United States, it's it does seem to be like sort of uh, Europhiles who are really into soccer, like they're adopting their um, like a. a english premier league team um and it's almost like a like well i'm too good for you know nba or or nfl or whatever (laughs) and it's like um and you know that's that's a somewhat of an exaggeration but there is some of that um so yeah i think i don't know just uh like the the organizers figured out in labor sports and worker sports, you got to engage with what people are interested in. And if you don't do that, then you're leaving it open for, um, for your opponents to do that. And we do have op- opponents. Actually, then could it be that it's the lack of labor organizing, right? Because sports makes it so clear the need for unions. But now it seems like union building is not so much in the left political discourse anymore maybe that's tied together then what do i need to talk about sports for when i don't even want to talk about unions right right um i think that's for a long time been largely true like there's like there's strikes every year but um they they're way down from what it used to be now that is changing uh, like there's a general support for unions um especially generationally that's really sprung up in the last like half decade. Like a lot of this is so new, like, <laughs> like we, the experience it has been like, besides your 
small group of leftists like just cut off from the cultural and organizational experience um so you know the rising uh labor militancy in which you know like a lot of these these wildcat strikes are not done by unions they're done by just workers who are just pissed off <laughs> um so yeah, it's 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 uh, it's a bit of it's a bit of that that like a lot of this is so new, um, like the organizing and it really has room to grow, um, and it's also that there's been a disconnect from the larger traditions. Previous guest Becca Kirkpatrick had a couple of questions for you uh, with the People's Olympics. How would that have been different from traditional Olympics? Yeah, so the the emphasis is on inclusion rather than elite competition. Um, so you're not looking for your best athletes. Um, you're looking for your most athletes. You're looking to bring as many people as you can. Um, and, you know, the aesthetics are different in that there's, like, left-wing songs, um, you know, like left-wing music um you'd have whatever cause is going on you know you'd see um groups there to advertise for them um and you'd have organizations of pushing different causes um so there it's more like left-wing events um so if, if a union is putting on a tournament you're going to see tons of union stuff um buttons and pamphlets and banners and whatever else. Um, and, you know, each club would have their banner, their flag, their pennants. And um, so the communist club of uh, East Vienna or something like that, you know, they'd have a huge banner that's up front and in your face. What about, with regards to competition, is that something that worker sports or labor sports struggled with? How to make it inclusive, but then how do we also make it competitive? I haven't seen much. It seemed like they they struck a pretty good balance in that, you know, it's it's not like they were against competition. Like they certainly loved games. Um and, you know, winning was was fun, you know placing first was fun but it wasn't like the the winners and the losers would, would hang out still <laughs> you know it was a friendly rivalry so friendly competition yeah yeah you, you <laughs> could still have a track at meet or a basketball uh game or whatever else um and uh yeah i haven't seen much evidence that like there was animosity about competition but and I, I, from what I've seen in both labor sports and worker sports, they'd have different levels. So if obviously there was one, if there were a few teams that were totally stacked, you'd try to have them play each other and not play the lesser talented teams. So you try to have teams that uh, were on each other's levels play each other. Now, having talked to you about this in length, uh, a lot of this reminds me a bit of punk. Yeah, <laughs> where the activity itself can be very leftist and promote a lot of leftist ideas, but 
like punk music, it had a fascist element, but also an anti-fascist element. Now, going back to your definition of fascism, then, like if you make it about solidarity and about we're all the same class, then it could become leftist. But if you make it about solidarity around nationality or race, that's how the fascists have used it to grow and recruit. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's interesting, the Nazi Germany and, and fascist Italy did try to use sports. Um, and they did try to have this mass sports or, that everybody had to participate in, but it never produced the same sort of uh, enthusiasm uh, for sports that um, the worker sport did. And then, um, you know, in the, the United States, um, there's less overt uh, fascism just because it was a little different. Like you sort you have more racist um, athletes than, than fascist athletes. Um, uh, but yeah, it was more like institutional racism. So like MLB, not letting, um, black players. And I think that, yeah, it depends on how much each side was engaged, um, to either uphold like racism in sports or to battle it. This actually clarifies something. I think a lot of us who are into physical culture on the left didn't quite understand why these activities can be used by reactionaries. And it's not that the right reactionaries or fascists are against solidarity. They want solidarity too. Yeah. Both sides want solidarity. They just have different conceptions of where that solidarity should go to. So the left wants it around inclusion, around all types of working people versus the right who wants it around a national identity or about their race. Yeah. And they might use dog whistle politics to, to do that. Like they might say like hyper individualism, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, but then they're, you know, it's like unsaid stuff to disclude people. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's true though. So let's end with this final question. Did doing this research give you more optimism about the future of the left? Oh, yeah, always. Um, there's, uh, I think it's in, it's like a, there's a documentary about old Jewish anarchists. And, the, and at one point, somebody asked this guy who lived through the horrors of the 20th century, um, do you, you know, after all you've seen, do you still consider yourself an optimist and he responds like of course i consider myself an optimist if you're not an optimist you might as well be dead you might as well blow <laughs> out your brains so <laughs> which is a very like brooklyn jewish like way to respond from everything i've seen um but uh yeah i, I sort of take the same like it's the world is horror and um very concerning um and there's a lot of injustice but at the same time um like history's on our side like there's more of us than there are of them we just need to you know create a different world using the tools that we have and creating different tools i guess and you've seen evidence from the past when some of these things were successful yeah. And, 
you know, at, at the same time, like you got to recognize when things are successful that there's probably a repression coming to try to smash them. Um, so you you gotta you gotta stay vigilant. Well, thank you for your time, James. Yeah, yeah. And thank you for being on the show. Hopefully, I gave you some stuff you can use. <laughs> <laughs> so, where can people find you? Um, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm J Generic, uh, just like it sounds. Um, we I do a podcast with uh, fellow uh, grad students in my department in the history department at Northeastern University. Um, and that's breaking history. Um, so we'll s- hopefully that'll continue, even though I'm about to leave and the rest of us are about to leave. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Cool. Thank you, James. Yeah, no problem. Now that's the show. If you enjoyed this episode and find this type of independent media worthwhile, please consider supporting the show on Patreon. We have a lot more episodes like this one in the works, but need your financial support to keep the show running. Even a few dollars a month goes a long way. No one does what we do, and it's all being funded by you, the listener. In return for supporting us, you'll gain access to lots of bonus content and along with our private Discord chat. Even if you can't support us, there's a lot of free bonus content there as well. We also have an online store if you want to show your Southpaw solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. And if you can't afford to support the show and still want to help, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. This makes it easier for others to find us. And don't forget to share your favorite episodes or the podcast itself on social media. Tell your friends. Until next time, goodbye.